Let's begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we delight to be called Your children and to know that You have created parenthood. You have created fathers and mothers with a natural affection for their children. And we who are evil still know how to give good gifts to our children and desire their well-being and all the more as believers in whom the Spirit of God is operating. But we thank you for this as a vivid picture of your love for us. As we contemplate that bond we have with our children, we recognize that it is but a faint glimmer of the love that you have for us. And so we find great comfort in meditating upon that. We pray that you would teach and instruct us as our Heavenly Father here in this lesson, that you would guide us and lead us into all truth by that Holy Spirit of adoption, and that we would be built up in our most holy faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of our lecture for today is Rich Lusk and Doug Wilson, Part 2. So, Last time, we were able to get through a sizable portion of our handout, but we didn't fully exhaust the topic. There's still a couple headings that we're going to consider as we look at Rich Lusk and Doug Wilson in our broader discussion in terms of the whole course on the federal vision, the federal vision controversy. And we've been looking for a number of weeks at Norman Shepard and how his teaching set the tone and really started to get the ball rolling toward what we know as the federal vision, which began in January of 2002. So we're able to start our series of lectures just in time to say that it was the 20th anniversary, but it's now 2023, so that aspect is gone. But 2002 the pastor's conference at Auburn Avenue Presbyterian Church kicked off the Federal Vision controversy. Doug Wilson was a speaker there. Rich Lusk soon afterward became one of the pastors in that congregation and became an avid and vocal defender of the Federal Vision. We looked at the many ways in which Rich Lusk and his views are connected to Doug Wilson. And if, if you're wanting to look at that material, you can see it on your handout, which is available at reform.com forward slash handouts. In addition, the opening portion of our last uh, lecture, the previous lecture, deals with that. So we're not going to rehearse that. But suffice to say, we saw that Rich Lusk and his views are not easily distanced from Doug Wilson, these two men being fellow ministers in good standing in the communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, and have, they've spoken together on numerous occasions in defense of the federal vision. Now, I want to clarify here that this is not our lecture on Doug Wilson. So we're just pointing out that Rich Lusk and his views are not easily distanced from Doug Wilson, but this is not our lecture on Doug Wilson, nor are we saying that Wilson holds to the new perspective on Paul, which we saw that Rich Lusk was advocating. We're not saying Wilson holds to the new perspective on Paul. We're not saying that he rejects the imputation of Christ's righteousness and justification. We're not saying that he agrees with Norman Shepard's doctrine of justification. We're, we didn't say any of that. We're not saying that. Nor would we say that Joel Osteen is a Buddhist. The problem is Joel Osteen somehow has trouble identifying the eternal destiny of Buddhists, right? That's the problem with Joel Osteen. It's not that Joel Osteen repudiates the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that he refuses to repudiate people that do. And he refuses to, to go on record and state the clear biblical implications of the gospel when it comes to people who deny the gospel. That's the issue with Wilson. He uh, affirms Rich Lusk and every quotation that we've looked at so far and every quotation that we're going to look at here today. He affirms these things as 
quote, in the middle of the mainstream of historic Reformed orthodoxy. So not only is he saying that this is fair game in terms of believing the true gospel and going to heaven, that these positions are orthodox and Christian, he says that, but he also says that these things are the middle of the mainstream of historic Reformed orthodoxy. And this is the concern. So we're lumping in Doug Wilson because he's the only one of these guys anybody pays attention to. Anyway, we're, we're showing that this should really impact our perspective on Doug Wilson. Whatever we think of Doug Wilson versus the woke culture around us, he looks pretty good in light of that. But when you assess what he has said about these clearly dangerous and false doctrines, considering them to be not only orthodox and Christian, but in the middle of the mainstream of historic Reformed orthodoxy, that's where we have serious problems. Again, Joel Osteen is not a Buddhist, but when Joel Osteen goes on Larry King Live and he's asked, then Buddhists go to hell, and he says, um, uh, I'm not really sure, Larry. That's where we have the problem. Uh, in this respect, Doug Wilson is the Joel Osteen of the Reformed world on the gospel. He stands tall in confronting the woke culture, but when it comes to his friends and colleagues who deny basic tenets of the biblical gospel, he refuses to take a, a hard line in the sand with those issues. And if you follow Doug Wilson, you know that when, when Roman Catholicism is raised, and this is true for most of the federal visionists, when Roman Catholicism is raised, they'll tell you why they're not Catholic, but you rarely hear them apply biblical uh, language of judgment to Roman Catholicism. You rarely hear that. Uh, in fact, Doug Wilson regards Roman Catholic baptism as valid, and on account of that, he speaks of them as brothers and sisters. And though he may say, you know, they're unfaithful covenant members, he regards them as covenant members, and it's unclear where he actually is willing to say, if you believe Rome's gospel, you're going to hell. He doesn't seem to emphasize that point. And certainly where Rich Lusk denies clear and evident tenets of the biblical gospel and advocates for N.T. Wright, who blasphemously redefines the biblical gospel, Wilson is not willing to come out with a, a strong, robust condemnation of those teachings. That's the issue with Wilson. That's why we're bringing him into the equation, not to slander him and say that he holds to the new perspective, but why won't he condemn Lusk's and N.T. Wright's views as a false gospel? Why won't he do that? Is if, you know, if, if you believe that you can bring works into justification like Shepard does and like N.T. Wright does, if, if you believe that someone can be saved even though they're bringing works into justification, then do you really believe in justification by faith alone? Think about that. Because if somebody's not trusting in the work of Christ and repudiating their own works as filthy rags, and they're actually coming into the presence of God claiming their covenant faithfulness as part of the reason they're going to heaven and that they're justified, if that's the case, then and, and they get into heaven, then how, how can you believe in justification by faith alone? Again, it gets back to Joel Osteen. Jesus is my Savior, but if he's not your savior, you might be okay. I'm not really sure. And so Doug Wilson says, this is my doctrine of justification, but all, all of my friends out there who are teaching these other things, well, you know, that's not what I believe, but he's not willing to say what I believe is the truth. If you don't believe that, you're denying the biblical gospel. So in any event, let's pick up where we left off on point four. Of our outline, Lusk denies the imputation of Christ's active obedience to the believer. We've seen that Lusk defends Norman Shepherd, and Lusk denies that God's law revealed at Sinai required perfect obedience. We've seen that Lusk regards the new perspective on Paul as fully compatible with the historic Reformed faith. And now we see that Lusk denies the imputation of Christ's active obedience to the believer. Recall, by the way, that we addressed this issue in greater detail when we looked at Norman Shepherd 
and his teaching concerning Christ's obedience in a previous lecture. So we're building on that, and we're also reminding ourselves of where this doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer proceeds from. Where does that come from? It comes from Romans chapter 4, which says that in justification, God imputes righteousness to the believer. Romans 4, verse 6, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So there's imputation of righteousness apart from works. We're told verse 5, the previous verse, it's to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for or unto righteousness. And then again, verse 6, God imputes righteousness apart from works. Romans 5, verse 19, after Paul has explained how we sinned and died and were condemned in Adam, chapter 5, verse 12, we sinned in Adam, all sinned in Adam. Then he says, verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience... Many were constituted sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be constituted righteous. And then he refers in verse 21 to righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, whose obedience is the basis of that declaration of righteousness? Whose obedience is the basis of our right standing with God? Whose obedience is imputed to us? in the same way that Adam's disobedience is counted as our disobedience and we're condemned, even so in the gospel, Christ's obedience is imputed to us. It is accounted and credited as ours in the sight of God unto eternal life. So that's where we get our doctrine of the imputation of Christ's active obedience. We said his active and passive, but Lusk is denying the imputation of his active obedience to the believer. He's already said that imputation is not necessary at all, but now he's saying, well, if there is imputation, it's, active, it's passive obedience, it's the cross, it's not Jesus' moral preceptive law-keeping that is imputed to us. Now let's look at some of these quotes. Quote, this is Lusk. Those who advocate a meritorious covenant of works put a great deal of weight on the so-called active obedience of Christ. I remember hearing sermons in which I was told, Jesus' 33 years of law-keeping are your righteousness. They were credited to you. He kept the law, the covenant of works, on your behalf. But the notion of His 33 years of Torah-keeping being imputed to me is problematic. So he he obviously grew up in a church that preached the gospel. So they're telling him everything Jesus did, his moral law keeping, his suffering, this is imputed to you for your justification. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And he responds to this. And again, Wilson gives his stamp of approval. This is Reformed Orthodoxy. What Lusk is now saying, reflecting on the gospel he heard, he's saying, the notion of Jesus' 33 years of Torah-keeping being imputed to me is problematic. After all, says Lusk, as a Gentile, I was never under Torah. You notice how he takes the moral law of God, which is perpetual throughout all of history, and he immediately becomes a dispensationalist. And he now speaks of the law of God. Well, there was the Torah. That's the old covenant law. And now I'm under the new law. And supposedly these Christian reconstructionists came into the scene to save us from dispensationalism. But by the end of it, they get you into the federal vision and they're actually imposing a new perspective, dispensational hermeneutic upon the people of God. So he he says, after all, as a Gentile, as if that makes any difference, right? Romans 3 says that all the world is under the law of God. I mean, I learned this stuff when I was a Reconstructionist. It's amazing how far they've come. But Romans 3, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is knowledge of sin. 
Paul here in Romans 3 is addressing both Jews and Greeks as being under sin, and the law that he's referring to applies perpetually to all human beings throughout all of history. That's the law Paul's dealing with in Romans and Galatians. It's a law he applies equally to Jews and Gentiles. In fact, he says that the Gentiles who didn't have the written law had the work of that moral law of God on their hearts. They didn't have it chiseled into the stone tablets, but they had it on the human heart. Again, Lusk, after all, as a Gentile, I was never under Torah and therefore never under obligation to keep many of the commands Jesus performed. Stop there. He's he's saying, how could Jesus' keeping of God's law be imputed to me with any benefit if he did many of things in his life that I don't have to do? Now, what he's getting at here is that part of Jesus' active obedience is his fulfillment of the ceremonial law. But understand, the the categories that we use in Reformed theology when we distinguish between the moral law and the ceremonial law of God. Understand that we're saying He fulfilled the moral law for us, but if you look at the moral law, you've got the second commandment. The second commandment requires us to obey all of the aspects of biblical worship, and therefore, if you look at the first and second commandment, Regarding God as God, which means obedience, obeying Him with respect to worship and ceremonies and all of these practices, then embedded in the Ten Commandments and the moral law, indirectly, is obedience to every law of God that is applicable to us in our situation. And if Jesus lived His life in the situation of Old Testament religion, then His obedience to the first and second commandment, or think of his obedience to the fourth commandment, keeping the Sabbath on the seventh day instead of the first day, these things are contextualized. He obeyed it in his own context so that his righteousness can be imputed to me in my context. And God regards his perfect fulfillment in substance of every command that was relevant for him as the basis for regarding me as perfectly righteous, as having obeyed every single command that applies to me. But the idea that, you know, the idea that Jesus had to live in Southfield, Michigan, in my situation, in order to be my substitute, is absurd. In fact, it doesn't only negate the active obedience of Christ, if you use this argument, it proves too much. Because Jesus died for all of my sins on the cross. Well, how could he pay the penalty for all of my sins when he didn't live in my situation? You see, the point is, he's my substitute, and the law of God applies differently to different people in different circumstances, but in substance, it is one and the same. Jesus fulfilled it, and we'll look at some verses that that reinforce what I'm saying here. But this is, this is an objection that does not hold weight or water. Lust goes on. Moreover, much of what Jesus did was, in the nature of the case, not required of others. Surely God does not require everyone to work as a carpenter or to turn water into wine or to raise a 12-year-old girl from the dead. These works were not accumulating points that would be credited to Jesus' people. The act of obedience itself, then, is not saving in itself, end quote. Now, if God grants you children, they're eventually going to raise objections like this at some point, but it's a childish, and I say, it's not trying to be name-calling, this is a very childish sort of objection. To say that Jesus can't keep the law in my place because I'm not a carpenter is not even worth responding to, but we're going to respond anyway. Hebrews 4.15 Listen to Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, Jesus wasn't tempted in all points as I was. He was never married. He was never an insurance agent. He was a carpenter. And then, you know, he lived in Mesopotamia. And I live in Michigan. And I mean, this is absurd. And yet, Doug Wilson says it's in the middle of the mainstream of Reformed orthodoxy 
But again, if Jesus can be tempted in all points as we are in the New Covenant, then He can obey in all points as we're required to obey in the New Covenant. And you don't have to have an identical situation and occupation as Jesus in order for that to be valid. But even more so, Romans 5. Romans 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So we all sinned in Adam. Okay? How many of us have ever lived for any length of time naked in, a, in an orchard? Okay? Was your situation identical to Adam's? Then how can Adam's sin be imputed to you? See, Adam's performance is imputed to his constituency, the members of the covenant that he was representing, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, who sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. So if his disobedience can be imputed to people throughout the ages who are living in very different situations, then why not the obedience of the one man who was the substitute for his people, the Lord Jesus Christ, who performed perfect obedience on behalf of believers. So, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. I keep saying that throughout this lecture series, but it is that they're saying this. Now, let's look at another quote. Here's Lusk. Quote, Is this really the way the beloved son related to his father during his ministry as an employee earning wages, as a hired gun fulfilling the terms of a contract, Certainly, this is not the picture we get from the gospel accounts. He goes on, The gospels make it clear that Jesus never had to earn the favor of God. He was never a dutiful employee, but always a beloved son. He had the Father's favor in his youth, Luke 2, 40 and 52. And he gives a number of uh, other instances of this. And then he goes on, He had it through the t- his temptation in the wilderness, Matthew 4, 11. Most importantly, after the cross, just when we might have expected to hear that the Father justly rewarded him for his meritorious suffering with a name above every name, Paul writes, the Father graced him with such a name as a gift. Philippians 2.9 So the, the word that's used there for he was given the name that's above every name is a word that in some contexts means to give someone something they don't deserve. In some context, it means that. He goes on, even his exaltation was of grace, not of merit. In other words, Jesus is being given something he doesn't deserve. He's crowned king of kings. He doesn't deserve that, according to Lusk. He didn't earn that. He didn't do what was necessary in the sight of God to purchase that, to redeem that, to gain that. Jesus didn't earn it. He didn't earn the crown. He didn't deserve it. It's undeserved. Wow. He goes on, similarly, Paul could say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Paul was not saying he had earned the crown. He was not suggesting he had merited final justification apart from grace. End quote. Now, there's a footnote here where Lusk tries to backtrack and say, well, in a certain sense, maybe Jesus did earn it, sort of, but it's not exactly the same with Paul. But his statement is either a valid argument or invalid. If it's going to die the death of a thousand qualifications, he should have just taken it out, but he didn't. So he's saying that Jesus' exaltation was of grace, not of merit. And he compares it to Paul and the gracious crown that Paul received as a redeemed sinner and, and he uses that as an illustration of the way in which Jesus inherited the crown. This is hugely problematic, to say the least. Because what it's saying is the crown isn't purchased. It's not redeemed. It's not bought and paid for. Now, if we say Christ earned it and deserved it, and therefore on my behalf, He freely bestows it upon me, that's the biblical and Reformed view But Lusk is denying that fundamental basis of me receiving it as a free gift, namely that Jesus purchased it for me. He likes to use merit, but the biblical terms that mean basically the same thing would be purchase, redemption. 
You were bought with a price. When you buy something, you're, you're paying the price that is required and you are purchasing. You, you, know, you could use the word merit, I suppose, but that, that's the biblical language. And we could ask the question, did Jesus relate to God only as a beloved son and not as the servant of the Lord, a dutiful employee who obeyed commands? That's interesting. Hebrews says that as a son, he learned obedience through suffering. So the Bible says it's both. He is the eternal son of God. That's true. He didn't have to earn the father's unchangeable approval of him as the son of God from all eternity. But as our substitute, as the God-man mediator, he is frequently described as a servant. Uh, Whether it's a slave or an employee, He is a dutiful servant of God on our behalf. And so you have Galatians 4, 3 and following. Even so, when we were children, we're in bondage. When we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Verse 7, Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So the son, as it were, became a slave or a servant, or if you like, an employee. He, He took that role and became a servant for us so that we as slaves and servants could become sons. That's the biblical paradigm of adoption. So yes, Jesus is the eternal Son of God with an unchanging favor of God, but as our substitute, He was brought low that we might be exalted. He became a slave so that we might become sons and daughters. And that is even more clearly emphasized in Philippians chapter 2, where the Son of God, equal with God, verse 7, made Himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. A dutiful employee? You betcha. The form of a bondservant. And coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So he's a servant. He served. He obeyed. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That word given does not always refer to something that is undeserved. In fact, in the book of Acts, it's used in reference to judicial law. Uh, And we don't have time to go there. But it's really a fallacy to play word games, just say, oh, well, use this word, when in reality, the whole context is, Jesus was a servant, obeyed, therefore God gave him these rewards. And, And to somehow deny the clear context of the passage and say, oh, it's undeserved for Jesus, and it's undeserved for us, and so on and so forth. It really uh, twists the Scripture there. Matthew 20, verse 28 says that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom. A ransom payment. To pay the price. If you want to say merit, okay, merit. Same thing. Pay the price. A ransom for many on the cross. John 19, uh, verse 30, I think it is. It is finished. He did it. He accomplished it. He paid it. He merited it. And we ought not to look at the way in which we receive our inheritance as identical or as this this sort of illustration the way he uses it uh, in connection with the way Christ purchased that inheritance. Notice Romans 4 verse 4, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Well, Jesus did the work. It's not grace, it's debt. That's why when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because Jesus did the work, He purchased that benefit, and now God, by a gracious covenant that He didn't have to enter into, is obliged by His own promise to to give us what Christ has purchased for us. If He didn't forgive us, He would be unjust and unfaithful. So it is a debt a covenantal debt that God owes to the Lord Jesus as head of the covenant.
Now, but, verse 5, to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So the people who are justified through the perfect work of Christ receive that righteousness freely. They do not work for it. They simply believe in the work of Christ and in that justification that is freely given to all who believe. So notice the contrast in the biblical presentation between Christ having worked and we who enter into His rest. And you can look at Romans chapter 3, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace. So it's free for us. It wasn't free for Jesus because it then says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that was to demonstrate God's righteousness. So Jesus purchased it. You as a believer were bought with a price and that was not something that Jesus received as an undeserved gift analogous to what we receive in the gospel. Jesus earned it. And uh, lastly, Isaiah 53, 11, speaking of the servant of the Lord, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So notice, he sees the labor of his soul. Salvation for his people is the fruit, the reward that he's purchased. He will justify many insofar as he is the righteous servant who obeys the law of God on our behalf. Even though you're not a carpenter, uh, you can still be justified through the perfect work of Christ on your behalf. Uh, Again, Lusk, quote, Many of us have heard the touching story of a dying Gresham Machen telegramming John Murray, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. I would suggest, says Lusk, I hope with appropriate humility that Machen would have been more true to Paul if he had telegrammed, I'm so thankful for the resurrection of Christ. No hope without it. He goes on, it is not Christ's lifelong obedience per se that is credited to us. Rather, it is his right standing before the Father manifested in his resurrection. His resurrection justifies us because it justified him. Again, it is not that his law-keeping or miracle-working are imputed to our account. Rather, Christ shares his legal status in God's court with us as the one who propitiated God's wrath on the cross and was resurrected into a vindicated, glorified form of life. End quote. So he's saying we share in Christ's verdict, his legal status, but we don't share in his obedience. So God looks at Jesus, okay, he perfectly obeyed everything, and he has a righteous legal status, and then he's going to take, according to Lusk, that righteous legal status, uh, or rather, I guess Lusk would say, he takes the sinner and unites him to Christ, and then the sinner shares in the righteous legal status of Christ, but does not share and does not have a crediting of the obedience of Christ that purchased that legal status in God's court. Now, This is a huge problem because in order for God to be just in giving the believer, the sinner, the ungodly, in order for God to be just in giving that person the legal status of Christ, they have to have the substance and the basis of that legal status. Rome, and Lusk at times, accuses the Reformed doctrine of being, as it were, a legal fiction. A legal fiction where God just uh, regards someone as perfectly righteous when they're really not in any sense. But that's actually what Lusk is advocating here when God would regard a believer as sharing in the legal status of Christ when they're not actually obedient and righteous in any sense. The Protestant and biblical view says that when, when this transaction takes place, it's the obedience of Christ his law-keeping that is imputed, and then on that basis, God declares the sinner righteous. Not arbitrarily, but rather declares, okay, you've received the credit of Christ's perfect obedience, and so now I look at you as having received that imputation, 
and He declares us righteous on the basis of what Christ did for us, imputed to us in our justification. So it's not just the verdict, but God is actually rendering a just verdict because He's looking at us covenantally in our representative, in our substitute, and He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ in our account. That is justice. What Lusk is saying is totally arbitrary and completely unbiblical. Romans chapter 5. How are we condemned in Adam? Is it the case that we receive Adam's legal sentence of condemnation without having received an imputation of his disobedience? No. Romans 5.12 says that one Adam, that one man who represented us, sinned, that all sinned in him. So it's not just that Adam sinned and we all became guilty and we received the verdict, but Adam's sin made it the case that God regards everyone who is in Adam as having sinned. And then he says Adam's a type of the one who is to come. And then again, verse 19, as by one man's disobedience, many were constituted sinners. And we know that means they were constituted and regarded as having sinned, not just as being worthy of guilt and judgment, but they were regarded as having sinned. They were constituted and recognized by God as sinners, as having sinned and disobeyed in Adam. Therefore, so also, by one man's obedience, Christ's obedience, many will be constituted righteous. So just as surely as verse 12 says that everyone who fell in Adam was regarded as having sinned in Adam's sin, even so, the basis of the believer's justification is being regarded by God as having obeyed in the second Adam's obedience. So you have the substance of the legal case, if you will, and then you have a verdict that is based upon the substance. Whereas with Lusk, he's saying, no, we don't share in his obedience, we just share in the legal status, which then becomes an arbitrary legal fiction. It's unjust. It's unbecoming of God. And really, it makes you wonder, does Lusk believe in the imputation of Adam's disobedience to all mankind? So it it begins to really unravel the foundation of very basic biblical Christian Orthodox teachings. Another quote from Lusk. The act of obedience construction also sometimes glosses God's righteousness. Romans 1, 16, 17. 3, 20 and 20, uh, 21 and 22, etc. As Christ's personal obedience. So when Paul says God is revealing His righteousness, he's saying people like our church, our denomination, re- the Reformed faith, we say, well, that's actually Christ's righteousness imputed, His personal obedience. Lust goes on. God's righteousness is His own righteousness, not something imputed or infused. God's righteousness is simply His covenantal trustworthiness. Specifically, it is His saving activity on behalf of Israel, setting the world to rights in according with the prophetic promises, Isaiah 51. Paul is not identifying the gospel with the doctrine of imputed righteousness, end quote. That is a denial of the biblical gospel. To say that God's righteousness in Romans that is revealed from, from heaven, that, that Paul is not ashamed of, Romans 1, 16, 17, If that righteousness is not the righteousness of Christ's obedience imputed to the believer, it's just God being righteous and just. That negates the entire Reformation. That negates the the light bulb that went off in Luther's mind, which is that exact verse that God's righteousness isn't His justice in punishing sin and rewarding obedient little boys, but it's the righteousness of Christ as the substitute of wicked sinners. You take that out, you lose the gospel. And you might as well become Roman Catholic as so many people who have read Lusk and the Federal Visionists have done. And I, I, I can send you links to Roman Catholic television programs where these people are interviewed. Reformed pastors that went Roman Catholic because of Shepherd and the teachings here that people like Lusk have been promoting. I'm not going to read the quote in letter, under letter E because it's just Lusk regurgitating Shepherd's false claim that the Westminster Assembly allowed people to reject and uh, take exception to the imputation of Christ's act of obedience. 
There's a previous lecture we did on Shepard and his claim to that effect, and we showed beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is just not the case. It's, it's jumbling up historical data and, uh, and claiming that the Westminster standards somehow allow for people to reject the imputation of Christ's act of obedience. We've already dealt with that, so we're going to skip that. Now, let's go to num- uh, number five. Lusk rejects the need for any imputation of Christ's righteousness at all in justification. So according to Lusk, he happens to think that Christ's passive obedience at the cross is imputed. He says things like that. But he also says things to the effect that imputation is technically not needed at all. Which again goes contrary to what we've seen in Romans 4 and Romans 5. But listen, he says, quote, New perspective theologians focus on union with Christ. They suggest justification presupposes union with Christ. If I am in Christ, he is my substitute and representative. All he suffered and accomplished was for me. All he has belongs to me. With regards to justification, this means my right standing before the Father. End quote. Now, what's deceptive here is that this is not the new perspective, right? The new perspective does not emphasize and affirm that Christ is my substitute and I share in his legal standing. And what Lusk is doing is he's trying to represent his view as if it allows you to continue to hold to the biblical gospel. But if you look at the quotes, some of which are in your outline at other places in the outline, if you look at the quotes from N.T. Wright, he's rejecting vicarious righteousness and imputation altogether. He's rejecting the idea that you need perfect righteousness to have eternal life. He's rejecting all of that. And so what, what Lusk is trying to say is, well, we're just denying the means by which you have that righteousness. We're just saying it's not through imputation, it's through union with Christ. But it's very deceptive. It's deceptive because union with Christ and imputation go together, right? These two things go together. And when you begin to separate them and divide and conquer the biblical gospel in that way, what you're doing is destabilizing somebody's commitment to the doctrine of justification. So let's, look, let's flesh out some of these uh, further quotes here to see what he's actually saying. But I just want to make it clear, New Perspective is not saying that. New Perspective is not trying to incorporate a substitutionary representative righteousness into their gospel. So, Lusk is either incompetent here or, or, or worse. Quote, His status is now my status. This justification requires no transfer or imputation of anything. It does not force us to reify or redefine righteousness into something that can be shuffled around in heavenly accounting books. That's not a very nice way to put it, but that's how he puts it. He goes on, Rather, because I am in the righteous one and the vindicated one, I am righteous and vindicated. My in-Christness makes imputation redundant. I do not need the moral content of his life and righteousness transferred to me What I need is a share in the forensic verdict passed over him at the resurrection. Union with Christ is therefore the key. So what Lusk is doing is he is is trying to take our focus off of legal forensic justification and just squint a little bit so that justification and sanctification and union with Christ become the, the organizing principle. So that we're not focusing on something that is inherently substitutionary, legal, and forensic, we're now looking at this sort of nebulous concept of union with Christ. He's also saying that I can receive the share of Christ's verdict without a share in the substance that makes that verdict just, namely His obedience. We've seen how that's uh, unbiblical. He's saying imputation is not required when Romans 4 verse 6 tells us that that is essential, that righteousness is imputed. And he drives a wedge between my in-Christness and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Let me give you an illustration of how these two things work together. Let's say it's the bottom of the ninth. Okay, this is not a perfect illustration, but no illustration is. But let's say it's the bottom of the ninth and Miguel Cabrera hits a walk-off home run and the Tigers win. Okay, 
And according to Major League Baseball, that means that because Miguel Cabrera hit the home run, the entire team wins the game. Not just Miguel Cabrera. But Miguel Cabrera hits the home run, the whole team wins. Now, why is it that the whole team wins on account of Miguel Cabrera's walk-off home run? Is it A, because Miguel Cabrera is their teammate and he represented them in the batter's box? Or is it B, because Miguel Cabrera's home run is credited to the whole team on the scoreboard? Which one? Which is it? Is it because Miguel Cabrera represented them as their teammate in the batter's box? Or is it because they credited that home run to the team on the scoreboard? Okay, it's obviously both. Right? It's on the basis of Miguel Cabrera's union and representation along with the team that his run was credited to the whole team. It's on the basis of the union that the crediting takes place. These two things go together. They go together biblically. We're justified in Christ and we're justified by imputation. These things go together. We died and sinned in Adam by way of imputation. So the union and the legal imputation or crediting go hand in hand. Why is Lusk and why are the new perspective trying to dissociate these things? And we could speculate, but we're not going to do that at this moment because we're pressed for time. But clearly they're, they're, they're driving a wedge between two things that biblically go together like a hand in a glove. Another quote from Lusk. He says, I would suggest that the traditional understanding of imputation is not necessarily wrong, though it could leave adherents exposed to the infamous legal fiction charge. Now we've seen it's actually the opposite is the case. He goes on, it could become, as N.T. Wright has said, a cold piece of business. The union with Christ picture seems more consistent. It does not necessarily employ the mechanism of imputation to accomplish justification, but gets the same result. Just as one can get to four by adding three plus one or two plus two, or just as one can get home by traveling route A or by route B, so there may be more than one way to conceive of the doctrine of justification in a manner that preserves its fully gracious and forensic character, end quote. I would not want to be putting furniture together with Rich Lusk. You know, well, this is what the directions say, imputation of righteousness, but there are other ways to do this. I wouldn't want Rich Lusk designing a bridge. Well, this is the, you know, the rules of uh, physics and architecture. Well, but there, there's more than one way. I wouldn't want Rich Lusk in the pulpit because there's not more than one way. And quite frankly, I wouldn't want Doug Wilson in the pulpit if he says, somebody who says, well, one plus three, two plus two, there's maybe more than one way. Sorry, if you think that's the middle of the mainstream of Reformed Orthodoxy, you need a sabbatical. You need to take some time off and clear your head a little bit because this is not mainstream Reformed Orthodoxy. Saying there's more than one way uh, saying, oh, you can, you can get there by route A or route B. My friends, there's only one gospel. There's only one doctrine of justification. It includes imputation explicitly in Romans 4.6. It is the imputation of Christ's obedience explicitly in Romans 5.19. We need to reject federal vision as a pluralistic, postmodern, liberal rejection of biblical inerrancy. Because that's what they're doing. You can't say you believe consistently can't say you believe in inerrancy if you say you don't need imputation when imputation is explicitly in the text. It's more than one way. It's pluralism. It's postmodern. It's liberal. It's interesting how selective some of these guys can be on pluralism, postmodernism, and liberalism when it bothers their social, civic sensibilities, but how blind they can be on very basic instances of liberalism when it comes to the gospel. And I'll close with this. Rich Lusk asserts that the real heretics are those who defend the gospel against the heretical teachings of Shepherd and Wright. He doesn't say it exactly that way, obviously. But, but he, he accuses us, or me, or whatever. He accuses his critics. They're the real heretics. Listen to what he says. Quote, 
We have used our attack on individual self-righteousness to shield criticisms of our corporate self-righteousness, sectarianism, denominational pride, etc. It's acceptable in many Reformed circles to ruthlessly attack other ministers, split churches, criticize other Christians mercilessly, and basically act fleshly, Galatians 5.19 and following. Because after all, the gospel is at stake. In reality, it is the gospel that is being flatly denied every time such attitudes and postures prevail, Galatians 2.11 and following. In other words, heresy is not only a matter of our ideology and doctrine, it can also be a matter of attitude and action, end quote. So in other words, in Galatians, Paul says people that promote a false view of justification, he says, I hope they would be emasculated. Is that heresy? Is that divisive conduct? The word heresy means divisive. Is is Paul being heretical when he says put out the bondwoman and her children, people who deny the gospel, you know, part ways with Rome, part ways with a false gospel? When Paul says things like that, he says you've fallen from grace. He says you're anathema if you supplement the gospel with something else and you, you deny the justification by faith alone. Is Paul being a heretic? It's very interesting how this is, again, this is the liberal playbook. Deny fundamental teachings and when you're accused of denying fundamental teachings, say that people are not being very nice and they're denying biblical love and they're the real heretics. And that's exactly how Federal Vision handles this. They're unwilling to receive basic biblical accountability for when they get up in the pulpit or when they write their books and people say, wait, you're denying the biblical confessional teachings. And they say, you're not being very nice. Liberalism, pluralism, postmodernism. Which, by the way, N.T. Wright is a liberal. These guys are are heralding N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright, go on YouTube. He defends women pastors and why they're latching on to this guy and and promoting it is, is beyond me if they really have a robust commitment to conservative biblical doctrine and ethics. So why won't Doug Wilson or his denomination go on record to condemn these teachings of Rich Lusk? I'm not sure. So I'm just going to close in prayer. Gracious God, we pray that you would sure up our defenses against cleverly devised fables, twistings of Scripture, which would reduce and dilute the firmness of our conviction and commitment to the faith once delivered. We pray that you would infuse your Holy Spirit within us to strengthen our faith, to hold to Christ, and to make him known to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.